You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. This is Hannah Provo, content director at the AAC. The Full Circle Everest team was the first all-black team to attempt Everest, and with the majority of their team summiting, they nearly doubled the number of black climbers who have summited the highest mountain in the world. In this episode, we sat down with three members of the team, leader and longtime climber Philip Henderson, North Face athlete Fred Campbell, and Kenyan guide and mountaineer James K.G. Kagambi, who is the first black African to summit Denali, Aconcagua, and now Everest. We talked about moments of joy on the mountain, what they learned working alongside their expert Sherpa team, what motivated them to join this all-Black expedition, and the evidence of climate change they witness, as well as the challenges of mountaineering judgment on mountains with unstable conditions, and of course, much more. Dive in for a dose of inspiration and insights you won't want to miss. Okay, so today on the podcast, we have Fred, KG, and Phil from Full Circle Everest. Can we just start by having you guys each introduce yourselves and talk about what you do outside climbing and how you got into climbing itself? You want to jump that off, KG? (laughs) Sure, how I got off, it's a long story. I can't (laughs) even go through that today. But obviously, I'm from Kenya, and uh, I started going up Mount Kenya before I met Nose, then when I met Nose, everybody, everything just came uh, together, got more excited, went to rock climbing, went to glacier travel, ice climbing, and then found myself doing high mountains and being interested in that. But in life, I guide in East Africa, but I also teach a lot for Nose in the outdoors. Um, and so my life is just in outdoors. Sounds incredible, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, my name, you know, Philip, and um, you know, originally from San Diego, California. Although I haven't lived there in a long, long time, um, I've been in the Rockies pretty much for the last thirty plus years. If I wasn't out of the country, and yeah, I got into the outdoors. It was how I got into it was a little, you know. It's, again, it's a long story, but you know, I was traditional you know, sports figure or person. And I played football and I had an injury and that allowed me to think a lot about life. And I found out about, you know, this other thing you could do. And I, I heard about a nose course and um, I decided that's what I wanted to do. So that's what KG and I, we share. And, and that, you know, that was really my introduction into all of these things and the climbing and mountaineering and backcountry skiing and boating. And, and I realized like, man, I like this and you can do it for a job and get paid for it. I was all in. And so I just, yeah, I did that. And so, and then after, you know, just really starting off in that, I, I got an opportunity to, I worked with a lot of, you know, people who were well-established in the outdoors, you know, industry and, you know, little snippets of, you know, hearing about Everest or Denali and things like that. And then, you know, working for, for Knowles, I just had, you know, opportunities to be connected with people who provided opportunities for me that kind of spurred going to, you know, higher mountains. So I went to Kenya the first time and, you know, worked a lot on Mount Kenya and and Kilimanjaro and then coming back here and eventually went to Denali and 
over to South America, back to Kilimanjaro as well. And um, yeah, I just kind of found myself not just climbing, but, you know, working in the outdoors. So really, like KG said, it's like, it's a lifestyle for me at this point over the last, you know, three decades. So, yeah. Yeah. So uh, my name's Fred uh, and I've actually got a, a very similar story to Phil's. Uh, we were both football players. We both had uh, serious neck injuries, uh, and that kind of pushed me to kind of look at what else there was in the world. And uh, while I was kind of exploring what else there is to do, I found uh, climbing, and I've been climbing ever since. I think I, actually my first climb was on Kilimanjaro, and uh, it was such a good experience that I've been trying to do it uh, kind of ever since. So you just really jumped in there then, just going to Kilimanjaro immediately. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea what to expect. So, uh, you know, didn't really know what altitude was, hadn't really been hiking before. and But it was something that I got to do with my dad. And, uh, you know, it was that was uh, an amazing uh, kind of experience we put together. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So uh, outside of climbing... Uh, I guess I, I live in Seattle now. Uh, I am a data scientist for Microsoft, and I'm also a climber with North Face. So I kind of split my time between sitting in front of a computer and uh, going out and finding something cool to climb. I think a lot of people are jealous that you guys get to climb that much and that it's part of like your everyday world. That's really awesome. So I want to get into like the why behind Full Circle, the Full Circle Expedition in a little bit, but I just kind of want to ground us. I think most people listening to this podcast know the Full Circle Everest Expedition was about having the first all black team summiting Everest or at least attempting Everest, right? So Mm -hmm. let's just start with setting the scene. Tell us about a moment from on the mountain or in base camp or just hiking to base camp, like about in the expedition itself, tell us about a moment where you really remember it, even if it's very small, just about being in, in the mountains with your team. The w- one thing that I can think of is not just being with the team, but realizing that the expedition was actually happening. And I think it happened more than once. Um, it could have been even even Fred and I, but I remember with Dom specifically, and I don't remember where we were, but, you know, the process of, of putting this expedition together and so on was so long. I mean, it really was, from, I think from the time Fred and I met, it was three years. And we had gone through so many meetings and, and you know, some training trips and, blah, blah, blah. and, you know, we had already been to Nepal in January. And we were in a village, so I forget exactly. And I remember Dom and I looking at each other and go, man, this is happening. This, this, we're actually here. We, you know, and at that point, it was like it doesn't really matter what happens after this. We, it wasn't mission accomplished, but it really was. It was like we're successful. We made this happen. That's the one thing that I remember. And like, we just kind of looked and made eye contact and kind of smiled and was like, "Yeah, it's happening." That was pretty cool at that point. Yeah, yeah. I think mine also is actually outside before we even started the expedition, and. In the team, I would say I was the hardest to get to because of nature of work. And even I didn't know what was going on until sometimes after one month when I would come to the computer and check on emails. And so all the way through October last year, I kept asking myself, 
is this really going to happen? Is it happening? And I found myself actually not sharing about Everest with a lot of people because I don't like failing people. I don't like telling people that I would do this, then it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And the moment I remember is I went to work in uh, canyons in Utah, in the Hoyt Canyon, and it was the second to last day. And we had camped somewhere on the last night and then the following day we'd do our last camp and then be picked up. And we are just sitting there and I hear somebody talking and laughing. And I knew who it was. It was Rosemary in the middle of nowhere. One, I didn't even know she was there. And I ran to the road and I looked out and I see three women. And in the middle definitely was Rosemary, but still I couldn't believe it. So I stared, and then all of a sudden she jumped up and said, okay, G, and I said, Rosemary, and we ran together and hugged. And the first thing that came out of her mouth, because she had come to the field later than me, I was there for a month already, she had come like four or five days, she says, it's happening. And that's, that's what I really remember, you know, about the expedition. And from then on, it changed everything. I was, I felt so committed. I felt that I knew I was getting somewhere. I knew now I could stand up and tell people, yes, I'm doing it. That's awesome. That just like moment of connection. What about you, Fred? The moment where I knew it was happening, I think as we got closer and closer to our January trip, it kind of started to feel a bit more real, right? Like we, we had regular meetings so that we could plan there were so many logistics to cover uh but we finally got to the point where we were buying tickets to go to nepal that was kind of like uh oh man after years we are we're on our way so that was that, that was kind of the moment for me that made it feel uh real nice. and even that was even that was a was switch because we went back and forth with yeah yeah we had planned the january trip and then you know something it was i think pandemic hadn't changed and we really didn't have the funding and so we planned something else and then you know the 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 protocols for pandemic kind of changed so people could travel again and then someone said well you know the kcc is going to run and so it makes a lot of sense to go and and be connected with the kcc because all those guys were going to be there and work and then you know, some funding came through and just kind of made it happen. So I, I agree with what Fred said. It was like, that was also one of the, the changing moments of, yeah, this is, this is really going. Yeah. Okay. So I know that you guys have talked a lot about this, but I'd love to know kind of just, I mean, especially just for listeners of this podcast, if they haven't consumed a lot of the content about Full Circle before, what motivated the Full Circle expedition in general, but also specifically, why you? Why did you say yes um, and kind of what did that process look like of being convinced, like, yes, this is something I want to commit to. This is a project I really want to put apparently years of planning into, right? So what's the meaning behind it for um, the team, but also why you personally, uh, what motivated you personally? I, I think I can start off with that. And I think it'll kind of set context for other things as well. But for me personally, um, you know, I'd never really thought, Everest wasn't something I thought of as, you know, growing up or even when I came into the industry, I never thought about going to Everest. 
when I started working at Knowles back in 94, I think it was 94. So it could have been at a party in early 94, 95, something like that. And Scott Fisher was there. And I don't know if you know who Scott Fisher is, but he also worked for Knowles, but he died on Everest back in 96, if I'm not mistaken. And that was really the first time that I really remember even hearing the word Mount Everest. And I was already 30 years old. And um, pushing forward a little bit, uh, 2005, I went to Denali and there was, make a long story short, there was another Everest expedition that I had gotten invited to that year and it didn't work out. And so now Everest was on the mind in a sense. And in 2006, I actually started volunteering for the Kumbu Climbing Center. And, um, and so that was my first trip to Nepal. So that was the first time I saw Mount Everest even, but I still didn't really have an interest of climbing Everest even during that time. I think I did four, maybe four trips to Nepal. Um, and each time I kept telling myself, I wanted to, I, I always went higher in the range. I went above Fort Say, I climbed Lori Peak. I went to Dingboche. Um, I just kept going somewhere else. And I also actually felt like I was, and it's kind of sound crazy for some people, but other people I think will understand it. I really felt like I had been given permission to climb in the Himalayas at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was 2006 when I heard of uh, of Sophia Dannenberg, who had climbed Everest in 2006. So now working with the Sherpas and understanding the reason why the climbing school had been had been established understanding the roles that the Sherpa community and other Nepalis played in Everest, then I had an interest, like what goes on in Everest? I would like to see that and be able to, to work with the people that I've trained and so on. And um, it was still just a thought. And I think it was Outdoor Retailer 2011. And I come around a corner and Conrad came around the corner. He's like, yo, put your name on the Everest permit for next year. And I was like, cool. You know, and I still, and I'm like, KG, I didn't know it was going to happen because you, you know, I, I'm like that. I had already talked about an Everest expedition before and kind of brought it to folks and it didn't happen. So it was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to fail in that sense. And I don't want to talk about something that's not going to happen. And so I had it in the mind. And then uh, I think it was the next outdoor retail and we all sat down together and was like, we kind of raised our hands as if we were in class and said, who's all in for this, you know? And we all raised our hand and, and it was like, okay, I'm going to Everest. And that was my, my first time going. So that was my first Everest expedition where I was, again, the only black person on an Everest expedition. But I had worked and been to Nepal numerous times and had only seen at that point maybe one or two other black people in Nepal during those, during those years. Um, and I, I left, I was out of the country for a couple of years and came back and ran into Fred. It just happened, we just ran into each other in, in Uray at Climbing Ice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the full circle concept had been there for me. I mean, I had that, you know, uh, legally as a business since 2003. So the name was there because it was really about, um, you know, giving back to and, and having what I didn't have when I came into the industry, which was, you know, role models and mentors and people who you could just talk about and to take you out and say, Hey, try this, you know? 
So the name was there. So as we got going on the expedition, I just kind of threw that out there as a team, you know, to the team as like, this is what it means to me. Um, but the concept of Full Circle was always about us giving back, but the expedition going was when we ran into each other and I had been mentored by Conrad and I think Fred can kind of tell his aspect of that, but we just happened to run into each other at the right time. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, to, to add to that, uh, Conrad had been sent, he sent me an email uh, asking if I wanted to climb Everest. And of course I, I wanted to, right? That's uh, it's the most well-known mountain in the world, the tallest mountain. Uh, I knew he had a ton of experience and uh, thought it would be really cool. And uh, he'd also been sending Phil the same emails, but I think Phil was in out of the country. You were in Peru and it wasn't until, uh, and you changed your email on top of that. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't until we ran into each other that we kind of got to connect the dots on that. I guess, uh, for me, I mean, it's easy kind of to answer why I want to climb. Like it's a beautiful mountain in a beautiful place. Uh, you know, the experience of getting that high is kind of one of a kind. Uh, you have to go to those like greater ranges to kind of get those peaks. But I think there's another component, like a lot of the work that I do is around kind of sharing climbing. Like we teach clinics so that people have the knowledge to go out and do it. Uh, some of the work we do with TNF kind of works to increase access. Uh, either they'll build climbing structures and neighborhoods that don't have access to climbing or they'll support kind of uh, projects that kind of make sure there's access for everyone. And so those are like two components, but I think another one is like storytelling and kind of engaging with people and kind of inspiring. And I thought that this would be, especially with the, the full circle team would be like an amazing opportunity to reach out to people that kind of didn't have like a connection to Everest. Like Phil mentioned before, he didn't even know Everest until he was 30, like with us and our team and kind of the things that like we could bring to the table. So, uh, I was excited to be a part of that and kind of, uh, try and reach a broader audience. And that, and that was part of the, the goal for Full Circle as well, is it wasn't a, a kind of threefold in that, yeah, we knew that only 10 Black people had climbed Everest in history. So yeah, give someone else that opportunity. Let's try and change that. But the other thing from my perspective was I had built this relationship with folks from Nepal in the Sherpa community. And what I gained from that, I also wanted to share, but also how many people in within our community can actually talk about experiencing Nepal and the Sherpa community and Everest from experience. Very few. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to broaden that ability to have conversation about, you know, Sherpas, because how many, for one, how many times do you hear people talk about a Sherpa as if it's not a person? It's just something that you do, right? So really educating people as well about this community and people of Nepal and, and the work that they do in terms of being people being successful on Everest. That was one of them as well. So now we create a, a community of people who can talk about it from experience, not just from what they're reading on television, you know, in a magazine or seeing on TV and media, that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. prime example is now Fred spreads that through a whole nother community 
And so that's how people get educated and so on. So that was a, another goal too. KG, what motivated you? Yeah, in uh, 1989, I summited Denali as the first black African. And then 1991, I represented Africa on a World Peace Climb in Niger. In 1994, I summited uh, Aconcagua as the first Black African, and I had done Kilimanjaro many times. And around that time, um, as I climbed more mountains, it's one thing that I realized that whenever I turned to the government for help, they would say, no, 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 we can't do that. We don't recognize mountaineering as a sport. And it's still in Kenya, they don't. And the more I did it, the more I asked, the more I was turned down, the more I believed that I should do more things to to, to show them that, that they should. And so when Everest came this time, I was like, yes, I want to do it. Um, maybe this is what it will take for them to listen to me. Um, but before I even got there, I had been on two Everest expeditions that I was invited in, but eventually I would be like put aside just because there are, there are some clauses that says, oh, you have to be a resident of America. You have to be, you know, and I did not meet those criteria. So I saw two expeditions go out, summit, come back successfully, and I did it. And I always mm. had a goal of, I want to be the first African to summit Everest. And I thought that that would uh, bring light to mountaineering in Kenya, where we have Mount Kenya, which is a difficult mountain to climb. But in 2003, when the first African summited Everest from Lesotho, sponsored, I think, from American uh, South, um, South African government, I was like, well, I stopped and questioned myself. Just, okay, somebody has beaten me to this. Do I still need to go to Everest? Will Everest help me do anything? And I've, I was content. I felt like, okay, I'm getting older and what I have done for mountaineering is enough. I have taught a lot of people, a lot of rangers on Renzori's Kilimanjaro, Mount Kenya, and my name is big out there. And I felt like, why even try to do more? So when Phil, who I have worked with in Kenya, we worked a lot in Chile together. And when it, I met him on Denali in 2013, mm -hmm. I was one of the leaders of the first African-American expedition to Denali. And still at that point, I was questioning myself, why am I here? And I, the answer back would be, yeah, I love what I'm doing. I know this is will excite some people to joining us to know that even people of color can do this. But I also realized that I, I deserved it. I had earned it from so many years of being in the back country and not being recognized. And so at that point, actually, I thought about Everest again. And Theo was there in another expedition. That's when I met Conrad and John Crocoa the first time. And I was thinking about it. I didn't know that Theo was also thinking about it, but I never shared that until mm. like three years ago when Theo called me, he knew what I wanted and said, KG, January, next year, we are starting, we are going to Everest. And I said, Phil, I'm not going. <laughs> and I was adamant. And he asked yeah. me to explain why. 
and I brought up the age, I brought up my knees, I brought up like, <laughs> it doesn't even prove anything to me right now. I don't need to be there. Other people can do it. I actually even remember telling him that there's a Kenyan who really wanted to do it, but he didn't have funding. And I said, I have somebody who can do it. And he said, you know what? I'm not looking at a Kenyan, any other Kenyan. I'm looking at KG and here are the reasons. And I listened and the next time we talked, I was like, okay, I mean, and when I committed, I committed and I felt, felt good about that. And I'm glad to see where it has taken me since we did it. And then funny, because even with, with all of those things, a lot of that I didn't know about, you know, like him being turned down many times and so on and so forth. But what I did know is that because I've lived in Kenya, I've traveled, I've worked in the outdoor industry for a long time. And I realized that if anyone deserved the opportunity to go to Everest, it's KG. But I knew that it was really hard for him to get that opportunity because of being Kenyan. Go back to full circle. I wouldn't have ever gone to, to Everest without KG, without, without Conrad and the North Face and other folks providing that opportunity for me to go. So here was my opportunity to then be that person to provide an opportunity for someone else who really deserves it. And so that was my, you know, plus I knew that he had worked for Knowles for longer than I have. KG is really as close to being a mentor as, as I've ever had someone who has more experience. He's a person of color, even though he's from Kenya. But I knew that he didn't have that opportunity, but I knew he had tons of experience in the, you know, with not only just camping, but mountaineering. He had been on Aconcago. He had been on Denali twice, so many times on Kilimanjaro, Mount Kenya. We had worked together. All of those things, you know, said, I know what KG is going to bring outside of just being a mountaineer and a person of color. He's going to bring a lot more things in terms of leadership and risk management, so many things. So he's also a great mentor for these younger folks. He's older than I am. He's a mentor for me. So all of those things said, like, man, you have to come, you know? Wow, that's really cool. I love that just like something such so small can like elicit like reflections on your entire life history sort of thing. Um, so thank you guys for sharing all those details. Um, something, Fred, that you said about like inspiring other people um, is kind of related to my next question, which is what has been exciting about the reception of this expedition? Like now that it's kind of been completed and then the flip side of that, has there any been anything that's been frustrating about the reception? Exciting. Uh, I, th I think people are genuinely interested in seeing what the experience was like. I think people have maybe seen a Netflix documentary or read Into Thin Air. So they have this kind of really small picture of what Everest and Nepal is. And so it's been really fun to see people kind of see more of Nepal through like our trip. So that's, that's been exciting. I think pe people are really, really like genuinely interested and in, like seeing not just the mountain, but the people and kind of the culture and all the things that are go along with it. Frustrating. I don't know. You have to, you'll have to come back to me. <laughs> I haven't been too frustrated with the response. I think not yet, at least. <laughs> yeah. Exciting about the reception back for me was, um, summiting, I would say, may not have been as exciting as I thought, because this thing you have been waiting for a long time, then you get there, it's like, is this what I came for? But then coming down from 
from the start of the hike all the way down, came to um, getting to EBC meeting my, um, my colleagues and the reception you get, then you start seeing other people through the eyes of other people that you have done something. And then for me, going back to Kenya and seeing the reception on, I got on the airport at the airport, um, being told that I was trading number two in Kenya, which I don't know what that means, uh, around the summiting time, and then giving my first presentation and the people who came, uh, part of them being some people who actually came and Kenyans who visited me at the base camp and seeing how many people are interested in helping me tell the government that yeah, this needs to be recognized as a sport. Seeing, especially a lot of women, I actually was uh, so excited to realize that a lot of hikers to the mountains now in Kenya, are, we have more women than men. And that hall was full of them. And even after, right now, I've been asked to lead the first expedition, women expedition to Everest next year. And I'm excited to do, to do that. Frustration, I can't, well, a little bit back to, to excitements. I got a lot of uh, interviews through, you know, internationally in Kenya, and that was cool. But obviously, having arrived in Kenya with all these people, people who want me to, they want to slaughter a goat and have a big party for me. Um, and this happened over and over. It was really tiring and sometimes wishing that I would hide somewhere. And the truth is when I got, I came to U.S. and went to the field, I was, oh, hallelujah, I'm hiding now. I can't, you know, I, I don't have to go through that. Uh, that I would say that it wasn't really frustrating because I really respect what people think of me at that point. And I can see that they are helping me get to the goal I want. The frustrating part of it was seeing Kenya had the first um, presidential election this year. And around that time, things were really hot. And so I did not get to get the attention of the politicians, meaning the president. Um, before I left, I got a note from one of the governors. And so that just, with the government, that just went quiet. And that was the best time to go out and say, okay, the president has invited me and I want to say this. That did not happen, but I'm still hoping that that will happen maybe in December. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so, so much in terms of, of the front end and during, and that's, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that we were successful before even attempting to summit because there was so much coming from in even you know in on the front end we had a reception we had we spent a full day at the US embassy we did a, a press conference with them and talked about because people in Nepal deal with a lot of the same things we deal with here in terms of diversity just in different ways and so on but it resonated so we spent a day with them we also spent time with the Nepali Youth Leadership Council which was a group of young people from Nepal we went hiking with them and so to see the full circle message about just people getting outside, people of color getting outside, people from underrepresented communities getting out and and especially in Nepal and climbing and so on. And that aspect of it, like people don't didn't really see in a sense, you know, and on the hike in, you know, again, there are people from 
so many different places. Going, oh, are you guys a full circle expedition? Oh, we've been following you. You know, good luck. Even having a group of folks who were from Kenya, there were five or four or five folks from Kenya who hiked, and we sat down and had a conversation with them about what full circle meant to them and what KG meant to them and why did they chose to come to Everest. So these conversations were happening, even with my, and this goes into the, the next aspect of kind of what's the, the, maybe a frustrating aspect of it on the backside also has to do with like my decision to, to not climb, which opened up opportunities for me to, you know, talk with different people about the future of climbing on Everest, the future of, you know, the KCC program and, and training for, for Sherpas and Nepalis and so on. Um, but then people not understanding that I didn't summit. So people, a lot of times they go and it's like, oh, you and your team summit it. It's the way that media is written or the way that people read things that they just assume that everyone for one reason, you know, summited or that we all summited at the same time. It's like, no, things don't work that way. And but here's the true story. And so there's a lot of, there's some good things that come out of that. And then the frustrating aspect of it is having to people not understand, you know, the, either the need or the not summoning aspect of it. So, yeah. and for me being out there, I think that was the best part of your leadership. When I remember you coming to me and saying, you know, this is what I'm thinking. And as much as I would have liked you to be along with us all the way to the top, I still could see the need for somebody to be there at base camp. If something happens, you are taking charge. You are the one who took us there. You are the mm -hmm. one who have all the connections. I don't know what would have happened if we didn't have that person. It also made us feel taken care of. It made us feel like, yes, I know that down there I have somebody I can depend on. When I talk to my family, I talk, don't worry. I know Phil is there and mm -hmm. anything happens, he can take care of it. I think that was very, very, uh, a very good decision um, to make at that point and that big sacrifice for you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll echo that. Like, there were so many things that we needed from Phil at base camp, right? Like, Phil was working, coordinating with other, like, team leads, uh, to figure out when they were going so we could kind of manage the crowds. He was figuring out like where to get the weather forecast, right? He was figuring out kind of uh, all of these things that you you have to understand before you even like start your summit attempt. Not to mention if we were in the middle of the summit attempt and we needed to figure out what the weather was at that moment, just to be safe, we could always radio back to Phil and kind of like, get an update. So those are things that like are crucially important. At the American Alpine Club, we want to give the best belay to our members. We are all about giving you the resources and support so that you can worry less and climb more. Join the club or renew your membership and access rescue insurance, gear and gym discounts and expert accident analysis, among many other benefits. Join or renew today at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash learn dash more. Okay, so kind of related to now, I feel like we're getting really into the nitty gritty of like being being there, being on the mountain. Can Do you guys remember um, a moment of joy or a moment of struggle while actually climbing or while kind of for Phil negotiating all of the logistics here from base camp? Um, 
I'm sure there were many of both, but like, I'm interested in like, KG was like, you know, maybe the summit wasn't as interesting <laughs> as I thought it was going to be. Um, <laughs> like, so tell, tell me stories about that. Like from like literally moving up the mountain, moments of joy and or moments of struggle. I think the, the, the beginning when we had all of us and some of our supporters, our sponsors, spouses and friends along, it was a lot of fun. And then the day that came that they had to leave and then just leave us, obviously still knowing that, yeah, they are leaving, but still it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It was a one, two weeks spent mm -hmm. uh, really well. Just there was so many people that you could run around and talk to and really support it. I other moments of puja ceremony, the base camp. That was a lot of fun just watching the Sherpas, you know, um, being themselves and having fun and all of us joining in the dancing and all that. And my other moment, I remember that was other moments were just being in the mess tent. I mean, the where we ate food and every evening coming back, coming together and our the main um, I don't know what I Sava of our food. What's her name? Oh, Jangbu. Uh, every yeah. time, like, you know, she would welcome us with a smile and walking or making sure that you're eating a lot. And that happened also in camp too. And to me, that connection of us and the Sherpas, and I would say especially me, just observing them, how they work together, how they help one another, was really quite joyous. It made me feel at all. And that's my, my joy because my joy is their joy. And I say that because that was a part of it. It's like to see them connecting with the people and enjoying that just like for me, yeah, it's successful. This is what it's about is creating, you know, this larger community from the, you know, from our climbing community. And it's inclusive of, you know, even the person he's talking about, Jungmu, was one of the few or probably the first woman to work you know as a cook on an everest expedition ever she was there the whole time was and that to me then connects with the work that kcc is doing to get more women you know into high altitude guiding or workers whatever that means so to me that all of that is joy it's like yeah this is happening all these connections are being made and that's the root of the full circle expedition as well as summoning it. Yeah, it was cool. We got to meet Jangmu in, uh, in January. She was in uh, KG's uh, kind of a alpine medicine class. Do you have any moments of joy or struggle to add, Fred? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fair amounts of both. <laughs> I think uh, I guess one of my favorite memories was, like, like uh, KG said, in, in the mess tent, we played... Uh, heads up for hours and like I don't know if it was the altitude but we laughed so hard for so long it was just such a good time and I think uh, a, a lot of like my favorite parts of it like have to do with the team and just the people that were there like we had we got to spend so much time with them and everybody was like awesome and fun to be with and so like I mean that's a huge reason why the trip was like it's such a good memory for me is because I got to spend the time with everyone there my other favorite memory was hearing that everybody summited. I had gotten a respiratory infection and got like really high fevers after we, I guess the wind brought us down from camp three 
back to camp two for a couple hours before heading back up to camp three. And at that point, I, uh, I got really sick and had to go down as everyone else went back up. But I was listening on the radio with Phil because they're that was kind of the very end of the summit push. And I could hear one by one people making it to the top. And that was an amazing experience. Phil was a little more reserved. He wanted to make sure everyone got down safely, but I was out there high-fiving and yelling. And it was, uh, yeah. it was a great moment. I think, I think you're bringing up a really good point um, about, you know, I think we maybe don't talk enough, even in like climbing circles about kind of the toughness of mountaineering judgment and how sometimes like, you know, you had to make a very specific decision about your health was at risk and you had to like not keep pushing. Maybe you could even couldn't keep pushing. Right. But that that's like a really valuable skill that we tend to downplay because on the flip side, there's not the the actual success of summiting. But there's something really important about that. So I guess tell me a little bit more about how you were thinking about having to make that decision and what that experience has been like. Yeah, I, I mean, we got together pretty early on to talk about like the kinds of risks we were willing to take on, what our priorities were. And I think to a person, we all decided that like getting home safely to our families was the most important thing. And so a lot of our decisions kind of were, were done with that in mind, right? And so our itinerary was a little different. We tried to minimize the number of times through the ice fall. We went and did some acclimatization on Lobache. And so when I got to the point where I was really sick, one, I didn't really feel like I could continue. And and two, I think like really the only option would have been to, to take something like Dex to try and push. And that's really unsafe. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of like a decision that like was easy for me to make. I think, you know, maybe some people would have decided that they're close They're you know, at that point you're less than 24 hours from the top if you're the morning of I camp three getting ready to go to camp four but I didn't feel comfortable making that choice so and, and I mean as as safe a year as it was I think for everyone in general there were still some accidents and there were I saw someone come down in the helicopter immediately before mine and they had it much worse and I think that it, I didn't want to put myself in that position and it sounds like if you if you came to the expedition with the idea of like just getting there in the first place is a success like I think that that's something that just like shapes your entire experience where you wouldn't be putting yourself in like a lot of danger because just bringing your the team there in the first place is something that's more valuable than necessarily the top as Phil was talking about earlier oh I I still wanted the summit I think uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) disappointing for sure but uh but, but very clear what the priorities were, right? Priorities were the safety of the people on the team. And that's like includes everyone, right? All of our Sherpa, all of us. And so I like, didn't want to make a decision that could possibly compromise my health or somebody else's. So when you get to the point where you're like pretty sick, like uh, it is it is strenuous at the best of times. And so add, add like high fevers to that and you, you you're not in good shape up there. Yeah, I, I I'm quite, I am thankful to, to Fred for being understanding because I remember being in camp two and going to check on him and asking questions and all that. And that's when I realized this is happening and 
as a mountaineer, I knew that it would be very hard for him to go down and come back up. But one thing I really, really appreciated is he was not fighting it. You know, other people would have said, no, 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 I can continue on. And um, not realizing that things can get worse and put other people at risk. So, Fred, you made a very good decision. But it's still sad, especially for me, just seeing you go down and questioning, is this going to happen again to somebody else? And that was in Camp 2. Fortunately enough, it was still at Camp 2, I remember that I was most joyous when I came back from the summit and met most of the shoppers there and they said you have to dance kata for us and i just started you know dancing kata kata and singing that and them joining me so yeah that was the place i had the saddest moment and the, the funniest moment no and, and you know there's so i mean so many there's so many joyous moments like fred was saying i still remember that some day i couldn't i couldn't really sleep because i didn't know how well i was going to hear the radio call I knew it would come at some point, but I didn't know if I could just fall asleep and I'd be okay or whatever. I So I was one eye. And then when the first call came, when Manoa summoned it, it was so loud and clear. I was like, okay, I can at least relax a little bit more now, but there's still, you know, six or seven other people who are, who need to summon and so on, but I could sleep well. And so each of those, so I remember each of those calls coming in and just being more and more excited each time, you know, but like, Fred said, you know, I don't really show emotion because I know what, what can happen. I, you know, you just don't know until it's over. And so allowing other folks to celebrate in some ways, but we weren't having shots of whiskey or anything until people were coming down off the mountain. But then the real joy, I think, honestly, for me is when it was all said and done, when we were all back in Kathmandu. And the strange part about it is, is that I think as a team since the day before going to the summit right since before the summit push we've spent maybe about six hours as a team all together since that day so all the meetings everything of the time we spent in camp and all that as a team after people left to go to the summit we have actually only been as a climbing team together one time when everyone came down and even thomas wasn't there because he had flown out right it wasn't there because it flown out. So um, getting everyone back in Kathmandu, and I think folks remember me saying, it's like, no, it's not over till it's over. And we ended up getting separated, even going back to Kathmandu, where half the team got to Kathmandu, and six or seven, six of us were still in, in, the, in, the, Kumbu, in the Kumbu Valley for three days. And so then we were able to get back. But once we all got to, back to Kathmandu, to me, that was... Yeah, we're, my, my job was over as the leader. I could actually, at that point, relax 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that that was a very stressful time. <laughs> Can't even imagine <laughs> that level of responsibility. Um, hot topic right now in climbing general, in general, but also I know specifically on Everest, is the idea of overcrowding. And I know your teammate, Eddie Taylor, has posted about this and is kind of talking about this idea of like the the idea of overcrowding can often be used to to make sure that certain people can't get to the crag or get to the mountain. And so this complicated, like very nuanced discussion about sustainability and like protecting a space and making sure everyone can have access to it, but making sure that everyone can have access to it, right? Because the solution can't be 
to minimize who can have access because that really tends to favor certain types of people who've always had access, right? So I guess, how did you guys negotiate the element of overcrowding? And do you have anything to add to what kind of I've been paraphrasing what Eddie was talking about? Is it a problem? That's the the issue. Like, I think sometimes we think it's a problem or we make it a problem or we hear it's a problem. Like, what is a problem, right? And so how do we tell the story about overcrowding? Um, Most of the days on Everest aren't overcrowded. Or you go into it knowing like this is a social mountain. If you're looking for a wilderness experience, you should probably not be going here. And that's a lot of different places, right? So, you know, you have a, is does a climbing gym get crowded? Yes, of course it does. You know, what, are we at, are we saying, no, we just put capacities on that. So how do you do that? And is it first come, first serve? Do you say so you have to be educated? You've got to go through this class before you can go here. There's, there's so many things that, but the, I think the biggest thing is, is being inclusive to those people who have solutions to those things and not just one group of people telling everybody that this is the way it is. And I think that's where we're kind of a crossroads right now in that more and more people around the globe are asking to be included in those solutions being at that table to make those those decisions yeah overcrowding the issue of um that i I would say that this year wasn't as bad as we have seen in in previous years and i can't say why maybe it's just because they have just restarted doing it maybe next year will be different but i also think one of the main problem we have is global warming especially for everest if you go to Kilimanjaro, you find some days that it's overcrowded but you are able to walk around and you know it's, it's, it's a big area whereas in everest you have just this one rope that everybody has to go through i noted that this year the window for climbing was very small so I don't know how we can deal with that. As Phil says, everybody has a right to go there. And if you say fast come, fast serve, like the first person who pays the, the, the permit, you'll just be saying those people who can afford it. You know, like the rich people can will be the only ones doing it because they can pay uh, five years in advance. They don't care whether they lose the money or not. If FCE... Is, has to fundraise, they may not, they are not sure even whether they have enough money six months to the climb. Mm-hmm. So it means by the time they get the money, they are shut off. So I don't know how we can deal with that. We are also looking at a country like Nepal, and I look at the same in, in Tanzania with, with Tanzanians. It's like we talk about this, but at the end of the day, the government says, we get so much money from this mountain. It is what runs our hospitals. Mm-hmm. It's what we are not willing to bring those things you are thinking about. So at the end of the day, it will be just individuals deciding whether to do it or taking advantage of that overcrowdedness to go out there and run. Yeah, again, I'll echo what uh, they said before. It is not a wilderness experience, but I don't think it should be, right? It's the most well-known mountain in the world, right? And I think that people are going to want to see that and, and should be able to. Uh, I think things are complicated by the fact that it is also the highest mountain in the world. And so it, it's difficult. It takes a lot of effort to kind of get things up and get things down, get people up, get people down. And so uh, with that said, I think they're doing a great job 
of, of managing it, given all of the things you have to take into account, like weather, kind of a small season for climbing. It, they had the earthquake back in 2015 that was kind of a like a, a major disaster. And so I think judging it in light of all of the like actual details that kind of go into being on the mountain, I think that I, I don't know if I'm willing to call it a problem. I think it's, uh, it's certainly something to manage, but... Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I do feel like a lot of the people who are calling it a problem haven't necessarily been there, right? <laughs> yeah, which is what, again, now we have another, you know, 10 or 11, 11 of us who were on this expedition who can speak about these problems and, you know, eight of them who can speak about it, you know, the problems high on the mountain. And that's just what it is. It becomes a conversation. and mm-hmm. But it's a conversation now from experience versus you know, reading a book or anything like that. So, Yeah, and I was wondering if you guys could speak from experience also kind of about what KG was starting to talk about of climate change and whether you could see those impacts from being there. And, you know, the first, my first response to that is, God, I wish I could have one of our folks from Nepal here to answer that because really that's one of the things I was looking at. It's like, Chappelle, you've been here 10 times in the last 10 years. What do you see, you know? Um, I had a perspective of being there, you know, 10 years ago and then going back and seeing something different for 10 years. And then we also see, you know, some of the science that's happening and, you know, talking to folks who are studying, you know, the receding glaciers and, and the depth of the ice and all these different things because technology allows them to do that. And then they share that information. And so for me, when I, what I'm seeing with my eyes and feeling with my body in terms of, I believe that it's warmer now than it was 10 years ago. It's warmer a lot earlier now than it was 10 years ago. The ice is melting. There's so much more brown surface, which are rocks and dirt that just uh, now than there was 10 years ago. I see that with my eyes. And then to have it reiterated through science, then I can honestly say right now, yes, Climate change is real. Global warming is happening. When I hear from, you know, I didn't go to Camp 2 this year, but when I hear that Camp 2 has running water in it and the Sherpas don't have to go and hike for 15 minutes to to chop ice to bring back to melt water, that's a sign that global warming is happening at a very high level, right? And so Everest is what I I call now a a global indicator, just like Kilimanjaro is a global indicator. It indicates what's happening. If it's happening there, it's happening other places on the globe. And um, to have the experience of seeing that myself and then having the connection to talk to people who see that every year and to understand what they're saying, there's no doubt in my mind that it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, same here my first time up there and uh yes i can only depend on stories i've had you know look at hillary's step it's not there any longer collapsed and it collapsed because of warmth and i can only talk basing on what i know mount kenya kilimajaro and renzori is where i've worked for over 35 years and seeing some very easy summits like point lanano mount kenya now becoming technical People have to learn how to be careful on falling rocks, how to walk down ice. We used to just slide down on snow. And now that's happening. Kilimanjaro is doing the same. In 2013, 
I led an expedition on Ruenzoris, which is at the border, the mountains of the moons, at the border of Uganda and Tanzania. And these, these two scientists were comparing the photos that were taken in 1908 with the photos we would take. And you could see a huge, huge difference of, of the same. And after that, I have been there, oh, I was 2013, had worked in Ruenzoris from 1996. And they were fond of putting up like ladders to make you bypass some crevices. And when I went back in 2013, there was ladders that were suspended. You couldn't not even jump and touch them because the glacier had gone so low. And I just went back this year again. The same thing is it's even worse. So yeah, it's global warming is happening. Things are getting warmer. I just came from the winds and coming out my comment was i've never seen such a stormy thunder for all the years i've worked in the winds this year was different a lot of rain and it's obvious that something is has changed and 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 uh, you know when you take that from everest and i've seen that in everest in 10 years i've seen it in like he was saying on mount kenya in 20 years Kilimanjaro the same, but not only that, but right here in our backyard, you know, I live in, in, in the, you know, Southwestern Colorado. And if you talk to people, you look at the weather, you know, over the last five or six years, and especially this year where, you know, you're just having record heat and you look around the world, the globe of things that are happening. China just recorded a 60 year high of over hundred degree temperatures, never recorded those types of things. It's like it it puts it into perspective that what you're seeing in these other places is also happening in your backyard. I'm sure Fred is going to tell us about the heat that he, that they experienced over the last few years in Seattle, you know? Yeah. A million examples like, uh, on ever specifically, uh, Phil mentioned it. our camp two camp was next to this lovely stream. I thought that was really nice. Uh, I didn't realize until Japal told us that, uh, they didn't used to have running water. So that was a new feature courtesy of global warming. <laughs> um, and again, local examples, there, there are a million of them there. We've seen it kind of in Alaska. We've seen it in the Cascades here and in Northern Canada. There, there were climbs done under like specific conditions where it was really cold and you come back at the same time and it's much, much, much too warm to kind of really attempt to climb because things are falling apart around you. There's a picture in the cane hut of the glacier that you can see right out of the window in the bugaboos from not that long ago. And it's retreated miles, right? Like it's, it's kind of scary, right? Like you're watching this change almost happen in real time, right? Yeah. Everest isn't immune to that. It's, it's definitely happening there too. And it impacts climbers. Yeah. I think, I think those stories are really important like how specific that example of the running water at uh, camp two, just like, because I think a lot of climbers want to talk about, yeah, climate change is happening, but I don't yet know how it's impacting climbing. Like can't like make it there specific, but that like is such a specific image and those like how mountaineering judgment has to change because the weather is just changing. Like your windows are different and that sort of thing. So thanks for those specific examples. I mean, there was, there was another example. I mean, we had a, a you know when when the when the when the weather information you're getting comes with a warning that says 
don't climb in the ice fall on these days because the temperatures will be too warm. Yeah. That is an indication, right? Mm -hmm. You're on the high, one of the high, you know, glaciers in the world and they're saying don't climb on it because it's too warm. Well, it is one of our risk, one of the risk management tools you have now is that you're changing your, you know, climbs into nighttime climbs just simply because of temperature. Okay, so we're running low on time, and I know you guys have a lot of things ahead of you. So I guess I just have two more questions. Um, do you think your relationship with climbing has changed because of the expedition? I think that this was the first high-altitude mountaineering that I've done, and I really enjoy it, I think. Part of that's probably because the people involved are so great, and if I go back to Nepal, I get to see all of the friends that I made. Uh, and do it again. But yeah, I think for me, it's only changed in, in a positive way. There's like a new world of climbing that I think I've, I really enjoy because of this trip. So yeah, I would say yes. I know I've been out here for a long time and I, I'm not a believer in, oh, that you're too old. There's nothing that can change in your life. If things can still change, I can still learn from uh, a lot. Um, Phil started inviting me to go to Nepal to KCC a long time ago, but I didn't have the time. And getting there, seeing the culture and how they relate and how they respect the mountains definitely made uh, a lot of changes in me. And I realized that I need to actually start working even harder to bring more people in the world of mountaineering and give them reasons of enjoying out there and having a better guiding opportunity rather than just running up a mountain. And I, I can't sleep without thinking about what can I do better for the guides in East Africa and uh, move on. Um, another thing that I have definitely uh, changed is just realizing how many people are looking up to me in East Africa to to better their climbing. Others just want to go to a certain mountain. How can I help them? And just realizing I need to sit down more and write some of the things I have done or some of the mountains I've gone to and what has made me summit. And the other thing is um, taking time to go up a mountain has always by been my way. I never tried to catch up with anybody. But that was definitely reiterated on Everest. And doing that made me enjoy the whole climb. Phil, anything for you? Um, I mean, this uh, this expedition, you know, specifically didn't really change anything. I think like KG said, it's like I catch myself sometimes saying, oh, I'm getting old. I'm not getting old, just my, you know, my my really like my goal right now in climbing is climbing with my daughter you know she's 14 and so if i can get a multi-pitch climb in with her in the next year i would be happy you know but really my you know my my focus in climbing changed a long time ago in in really into helping other people and whether that be gaining the, the level of using my experience and gaining theirs i still have personal goals sure i love being in the mountains but again that when when other people succeed, I succeed in that. And so really, I think being a steward of, of climbing and, and what that entails, which to me also entails, you know, being a, an, an environmental steward as well as climbing in the climbing community. Um, with that said, 
that goes along into skiing and, you know, not just climbing, but skiing and boating and, you know, so many other things. And so I, I, I really, I still enjoy the climbing and this didn't change it. It just reiterated the fact that to keep getting more and more people into climbing is, is really the goal and, uh, and educating them at the same time. So, yeah. Absolutely. And I think you've all kind of started talking about this, but What's next for each of you in climbing, in your climbing careers? Or are you not going to say because you don't like committing to it, KG? <laughs> I, I, I don't like committing to it, but I, well, I definitely have ideas. I've been asked that many times. Actually, I just came from writing things I want to do because of those questions, realizing that I'm in a position whereby I may get to somebody who say, okay, what next? And they really mean it and they want to sponsor it. So you need to be ready. I've been asked about the seven summits. I still have three. Two of them right now are difficult Ebras and the one in Indonesia. So I don't know where to take that on. My other thing is, again, developing climbing in East Africa and obviously still working hard to make sure that the government of Kenya and the other ones in East Africa recognize sports, you know, like athletics, get so much money from Kenyan uh, government and we get nothing. So still wanting to do that. There's a new route I want to do on Mount Kenya, the hiking route to help a certain Eastern community to be guiding up the mountain. That's something else I would like to develop. All those need money. And now this thing next year about these ladies who won't be the first uh, to ascend Everest from Kenya. And I, I'm hoping they'll be able to fa raise funds us to do that next year that's really exciting yeah i mean i'm excited on a lot of things i think there's some fun winter climbing that we got to scope out when we were there in, uh, in nepal in january i would love to go back for that still really excited on the local climbing here pacific northwest it's a lot of fun to get out and kind of get on the peaks here rock climbing yeah i mean i'm just enjoying myself it's exciting to hear that, that Fred is scoping out some winter climbs in Nepal to go back. I know Losar is probably <laughs> calling his oh, yeah, name. Oh, yeah. For sure. yeah. 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 And then, yeah, the, the only other thing, you know, for me climbing, it's still climbing, but, you know, um, continuing to, to develop the, you know, the nonprofit for full circle expeditions, which really is setting up a way to be able to help support these folks and the things that they just talked about. Um, that's kind of why I say my personal climbing is more so, you know, with family, but in pursuit of, of being a steward of that is just helping other people in, in their drive to, to, to do other things. And man, to hear, I mean, if Fred's excited about going back, I know that there are other people to hear that KG has a new route. He would love to get back to Mount Kenya and do, so there's so much stuff, you know, that's out there. And there's, uh, there's also, you know, just we're looking at this cross-cultural training with folks who are guiding on, on Kilimanjaro to go to Nepal or folks who guide on, in, you know, Neverest to go to Kili or go to Mount Kenya. So really it's about continuing to build that greater, you know, climbing community around the globe too. So. That's also so exciting. Awesome. Do you guys have any last stories you want to share before we wrap up? You know, not I don't have any any real stories. I mean, the the biggest one is I mean we touched on it in terms of of global warming, and I I think for me that's probably when people asked about my my Everest experience this year. That's I talk about 
the 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 climate change more so than anything and what I actually see in a 10 year period and what I've you know heard from my Sherpa friends and Nepali friends and, and what they've seen over that 10 years that I haven't you know been there so really you know we we are all a part of that that solution and we need to look at what we do I think individually and as a community and as a society to you know really lower our carbon footprint and to look at the you know what the next you know generation and what we're leaving for them so yeah get out and do the best you can do to whether that be vote or you know talk to other people about you know getting out and doing the things that they need to do so just kind of changing up our lifestyle a little bit more i think it's huge for me what i'm thinking about right now is uh i have a lot on my plate having done what i did for kenya and i never thought about this so everybody coming to me and wanting to do things and actually part of it that's why i'm visiting field because i would like to talk about um a, a full circle expedition also expanding to east africa because i nature of my work doesn't allow me to meet as many people as it does or expose me to to opportunities that come because i'm always in the field and don't know how to fundraise to get money to do all those things i want to do for east africans to be better mountaineers Okay, well, thank you so much for bringing your voice to the podcast today, Phil, KG, and Fred. I really loved hearing all your stories, um, the specifics of what you're bringing. I feel like I really got to understand kind of a lot of the different elements. I mean, it's just brushing the surface. So I'm really excited to continue hearing your story and how you guys share about your experiences on Everest um, in the future. And I'm so excited for all of your future expeditions. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Hannah, for having us. This is awesome. You know, it's not often we, I mean, every time it's some, some a different team members getting together. So it's cool to have, for one, having KG sitting right next to me, visiting and having Fred on the other side. And this is awesome. So thanks so much. Appreciate it. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. You can find films, articles, podcasts, and more on our stories page at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash stories. Delve into the policy, climber education, and community issues that are impacting climbers like you at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash stories.